All right, everybody, how's it going? My name is John Keeler. I'm one of the pastors on staff. I know that uh, summertime is coming to a close, or, or beginning, and school is coming to a close. And, um, you know, we, we just think about um, all the circumstances that we're in and, and how applicable the Bible is, right? And how applicable the, God's Word can be to our lives. And we're in the Second Timothy series called People of Purpose. And this specific area is talking about reinforcing um, what we already know, no matter what our circumstances are. Now, as far as circumstances go, I, wanna, I want you to think, would you agree with the statement that we are living in terrible times? I heard a lot of amens. Is that because school's out for some of the moms? Or No, but just... To yourself, think of the top two or three things that you can that come to mind when you think of terrible times that we're living in terrible times. Just kind of think about what makes them so terrible to you. If you're if you're like me, at least um, when I read in Scripture about terrible times and what we can expect, you're thinking probably about macro level things, right? I think a lot of um, controversy that's been going on, hate, division, um, you know, the war in Russia and Ukraine, um, stock market, gas prices are terrible, right? <laughs> um, at the start of the summer season, you got the um, shortages, inflation. I mean, there's all these things that are going on that just seem to be terrible, right? And that things just keep going from bad to worse. But what if... The real problem is internal, right? It's individual. It's at the heart of our nation, each individual, at the heart of us in this church and, and those around us. So what we're going to see from this text is really that the heart and root problem of the terrible times that we live in is really misdirected love. It's a counterfeit love that we've come to love ourselves instead of loving God and others. So when we look at our scripture for the day, we're going to be in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 4. That's our primary scripture. And if you had been following along with us um, in chapter 2, Paul talked to Timothy in the church in Ephesus about persevering, remaining faithful. But now he starts off, and, and if you look at this uh, next verse on the slide, 2 Timothy 3.1, Paul says, he, he starts a new section and he says, but mark this, know this, there will be terrible times in the last days. And um, the same that was true for them 2,000 years ago in Ephesus is even more so true today, right? Um, we are living in the last days and they are truly terrible times, um, the term last days is, is all over the Bible, right? God's uh, prophecy in Scripture talks about this time. It's really the time from Pentecost where after Christ's ascension, the church age began, um, all the way up until his return, which is imminent. It can happen at any time when he raptures his church. So that's a pocket of time called the last days. It could, be, it could have been 50 years. It could have been 2,000 years. It could be 4,000 years. But we, we know that these are the last days. And there's very specific promises in Scripture that talk about things getting worse. 
They were bad already, they get worse, right? And we've seen that. And Jesus warned that love would grow cold in those last days. Um, And I think we've seen that quite a bit as well. But the problem is that Paul and the early church, they were vigilant, right? And that was what drove a lot of their activities. Um, If you are familiar with the book of 1 Thessalonians, the, the church in Thessalonica was so actively aware of the last days and Christ's return that they thought it might have happened already. And, um, but now here we are 2,000 years later in America in our convenient homes and churches and air conditioning and everything, um, and we, we forget that we are really living in terrible times. It's not just terrible times on the news, um, and, and yet we forget that Christ is coming at any time. And we grow asleep, and I think you'll see that we, we become compromised. And that's really the heart of what we're going to talk about today. So after this warning, if you turn, um, we're just going to look at 2A, uh, verse 2A and 4B up on the screen. And after this, this kind of warning about terrible times, Paul is going to go into the next two verses to give a problem statement. The reason why the last days are so terrible. And again, it might not be something um, macro uh, level. It's, it's really what he's talking about is 18 different sinful behaviors or vices or issues within mankind, um, Christians and un- unbelievers. But he's going to talk about all 18 in that they're interconnected and characterize the last days. But for now, I just want to focus on two of them, because, and we'll get to the reason why. The beginning and the end start and end with, people will be lovers of themselves. And then it ends with, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It begins and ends with this kind of bookend of of misdirected love. It's really the main reason why the times are terrible, because people love themselves more than God. And really, this self-love is kind of the root cause. It's a cancer that kind of eats away and destroys you, and it destroys everyone around you. And primarily, it's because it's a direct violation or an opposition to God's greatest command for us, right? If we read up on the next slide, Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. Jesus was being questioned constantly by these prideful, arrogant, self-loving Pharisees, if you remember it through Scripture, all the time, wherever he went. They were trying to trick him, um, trying to ask him about who to pay taxes to, and so on and so forth. They couldn't uh, ever trick him. But they asked, they, this, this next piece of scripture, he, he talks to them, and he knows their hearts. And it says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And one of them, an expert of the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And, and I know that you know that this man did not really expect an answer that he, that he was looking for. He, he was really trying to test Jesus. He was prideful. And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You see, 
our highest purpose in life is to love God first and then others. But what happens is the enemy knows this. And so he tries to misdirect our love. And it's his number one temptation for each of us. And we most times don't even realize it. In fact, it's really um, the first sin that he committed, right? He loved himself so much, Satan, that he wanted worship for himself. He was so prideful that he didn't want God to have the rightful place. He wanted God's place. And so he fell. And so he constantly tries to misdirect us. And we fall for it all the time. And this is the problem that Paul is warning Timothy and the church in Ephesus about, okay? That there's this self-love cancer, this problem. And in our country, I, I think of, boy, we've taken that to a whole new level. And, and I don't even think most people realize, you know, what parts of our culture kind of seep into our own thinking. Um, think about the comment that, you must first love yourself before you love others, right? Would you agree with that comment? Um, is that what the Bible says? I don't think some people realize that it's not. It's actually in opposition to what, what God tells us, right? It's not about first loving yourself. It's about first loving God and then others. And this false doctrine of self-love it, believe it or not, I was in one of my courses. I actually studied some of some of what happened here. It's it's it, it crept in in the late 20th century, around some of this modern thinking, um, secular philosophy, right? Modern psychology, around this issue of um, self-esteem. Everybody knows all about self-esteem in our country. And it's all about building up your self-esteem, fixing man's root problem of a low self-esteem. But the Bible doesn't talk about man's problem being self-esteem. It talks about man's problem being sin, right? I mean, how many children have you ever seen that need to be taught to be selfish? Um, I'm glad it's not a... Family Sunday, you know, so the kids are a minimum in, the, in, in here. But, I mean, my kids were experts <laughs> right away, right away. Um, they had no self-esteem issues. There, there's an interesting thing. I saw that, that there's this company body shop and, and a number of companies. They've rallied together on this crusade. It's called the Self-Loving Crusade. And they, and they come, the self-love uprising is part of, our, part of this as well, but they came up with this index. It's called the self-love index. And they're on a mission for all of us to love ourselves more, to fix our problem by loving ourselves more. And they did this survey to, to test where countries fell out, and, and guess what? We're in the top three because we love ourselves here in America. We have no problem with self-love. In fact, I think of things like selfies, right? You know, got to have your me time. And you need that. You need that for you, okay? <laughs> right, Tim? Um, and, and now, you know, flipping the switch. And, you know, on, on the extreme end, a child's life is one selfish decision, right? Think about that. That's, that's where we live today. Um, we have no problem with, with self-esteem. The problem is self-love because it blinds our eyes to our sin, 
I'm not, it's not me, I'm not the problem. Um, it blinds our eyes to sin, and it blinds our eyes to our need for God. Now, there was this book that I read, part of um, Psychology Through the Eyes of Faith. And, and the two authors, um, David Myers and Malcolm Jeeves, they write about this problem. They said, time and again, experimenters have found that people really readily accept credit when they've been told that they succeed. They attribute all their success to their own ability and effort. And yet they attribute failure to external factors like bad luck. It's not my, it's not my problem. It was bad luck if circumstances didn't, didn't help out any. And this is true not only in laboratory settings, but with athletes after a win or a loss. Um, I think of students after high or low exams, drivers after an accident. Well, that wasn't my fault. He came out of nowhere. Or marriages. Think about marriages. Well, I do all this for my spouse, but they don't, they don't care. It's not my problem. It, they're worse than me. And so this problem is that we all think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We, ha we live a self-centered life through that filter. We're better than everyone else, and everyone else is the problem. Now, why does that matter? What's so important? Well, the first thing about setting our mind on a true love is that we can never know what love is unless we have God at the center of our lives. You will never know what, God, what love is unless God is at the center of your life. And, and, you know, I think of all the times we think about in Scripture, the truth of the gospel is the exact opposite of what the, the culture will tell you. In fact, Read with me, I have a slide here for Matthew 16, 24 through 26. And this is going to tell, talk, this is what Jesus talked about his kingdom, the kingdom of God. Jesus said to them, to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So this type of love of God is what we're called to, right? And we overuse that word love so much that we use it for pizza. We, we use it for texts. Like, I love that text. Like, you can do that little button. Um, it's great. I, it really makes me feel good when somebody loves what I text, but that's not love. That's not love. We've come to think of it as a feeling. But as we sung about today, love is really an active, wholehearted love. It's something you almost can't even put into words. You can't describe it. The love of a father for a son and for a spouse. But this is the love, and even beyond that, what God requires of us, what he wants of us. He wants our whole heart, soul, and mind, right? Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind. The whole heart. And he deserves it, right? And the Bible tells us that he's a jealous God. And that, that trips people up. I have, there's a lot of younger kids that go, what does it mean? God's jealous. That seems like, because we've used that word so so sinfully in our culture, a jealous person is, is not a good person. But God is a perfect jealousy. A love for us that's so consuming that wants 
only the best for us, wants our whole heart. And in fact, Psalm 37, 4 says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart, right? See, he doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't want us to love us because he needs that love. He's self-sufficient. He knows we need to love him that way. And that's our highest desire. Another um, reason is that love really isn't something that you can accumulate and hoard for yourself, right? If you keep it to yourself, it rots you. But if you give it away, you can't uh, ever run out, right? And when you think about the type of love that God gave us, we, 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 we read 1 John 3, 1, and it says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. And the type of love that God gives us is his whole heart, right? He gives us true love. And that gives us the ability to, to love others. And sometimes we, we stop short just to think about the love that God has for us, but we don't think about the duty and the requirement and the opportunity to pass that on to others. In, in Romans 13, 8 through 10, I, I love this verse because it's like the cheat sheet for how to live at peace with people. It says, let no debt remain outstanding except to continue the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commandment there is are summed up in this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. You see, if we have a proper, true love for others, we fulfill the law. Not, not just the feeling. And the reason is because the love that God's talking about is demonstrated and we learn about in 1 John 3, 16 and verse 18. It says, this is how we know what love is. How do we know what love is? This is how. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And then in 18, it says, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. Actions and truth. A life-sacrificing love. Is that our definition? Is that the way you love others? I think of a story, There's a, um, there was a man, Jim and, and Philip, uh, um, that I read about, a true story back in World War II. They were buddies for their whole lives and um, were, were connected all the time. They went to war together, served in the same platoon. They were in a, in a firefight, and um, through the smoke and the bombs and everything, Jim couldn't find Philip anymore. And he was panicked. And they all were, had to retreat. They came back, further back, yards back. And all of a sudden, Philip, where was he? Where's, where's my friend? He went to go get him. But Jim was told by his platoon officer to just stay back. It's too dangerous. You're going risk to your, risk your life. But he, he couldn't stay. He decided to, to run out into enemy lines again against the, the, the orders of his, his uh, officer. 
And all of a sudden, they could see Jim running back with his friend, dragging him through back to their, uh, their base, and he was dead. Um, his friend was dead. And he was, the officer was furious. He was yelling at him and, and told him, what, why did you risk your life? That was the stupidest thing. It was too late. And, and this is what, what got me on this story is, is Jim replied, no, it wasn't too late. Well, I got there just in time because Philip's last words were, I knew you'd come for me. You know, and you think about that kind of love, some love, love that, you know, risks your own life. And I think, I think that's a hard concept for us to think about today. And it's, isn't it, doesn't it? Um, make headlines when you when you see things like that. I remember a couple years back there was a um, a barista at at Starbucks where one of her cl- um, customers, her regulars, uh, had had to get a kidney transplant and, and was years down the list. Um, and they knew he wouldn't make it in time. And her husband ended up donating a kidney, and and it made headlines. And it's and it's a wonderful story. And you know, self-love, or I mean, of, of loving others and, and selflessness. But those are not the things that, that we do every day. It's not the type of actions that we've come to, to be known for. So self-love over real love is a problem. It's a, and, and I think, I don't think anyone would disagree with that. But again, coming back to that one psychology article, it's it's not just everyone else's problem, it's our problem. And that's, that's the hardest part of the sermon is just really convincing all of us that there's something that's rubbed off that we need to, to be aware of, that we need to clean up. Now, on the next slide, we're going to read the bulk of that, that scripture, and, I, and I'll explain it briefly before we move into it. And it's 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 4. Paul explained that people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, the important thing to know is that any of these vice lists, and there's like 20 of them in the Bible, they're not just, you know, a rant of all the sins that are known to man. It, it, there's a purpose behind these lists, and especially when Paul's involved, he has a purpose. What he's trying to show is that the root cause is a misdirected love. It's a self-centeredness. And he does it in a literary device that shows from beginning to end, it kind of, he kind of wraps around the words, and we don't have the benefit of seeing it in Greek, but he uses the wording in such a way that showing it points, it begins and ends with loving yourself instead of God. And all these things are just vices that follow that. Because really, when you are focused on yourself, all these other sinful behaviors become apparent. And it's not just the people you know, the ungodly people, when we read these scriptures, you can't just, you know, move on quickly. It, you know, it would have been nice for me to, to jump over to, you know, Second Timothy 4 and just skip this, this list. But 
what we really need to do is kind of have a time of self-reflection, use it as a litmus test. And what I'm going to show you up on the slide is, is there's going to be a comparison looking at on the left-hand column is going to be our, our definition from our verse. And on the right-hand side, this is um, the definition from 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through, through 7, which is the true love definition versus self-love definition. And just rattling off a few of these, just be reflective. Think about what is, um, you know, what's the, what's the root problem for you? Or, or hopefully you can identify where maybe you've loved yourself a little too much, right? Um, we know that lovers of money, you know, that, that's one of the verses in the Bible that we quickly quote, right? That uh, loving money is a root of all kinds of evil, right? But what happens here too sometimes you know, in, especially in our country, and I, I mean, I, I think I'm guilty of this sometimes too. You, you think about the future, your 401k, your retirement, right? You, you, you add up all of these thoughts about what you need to do to protect your family. I don't want my kids to feel I'm a burden one day. So you accumulate. And, but the problem is sometimes we, be, we begin to take a good-hearted planning and allow that to turn into um, hoarding money or you know, thinking more of yourself than others, being stingy, right? And um, the next two, I, I think, boastful and proud, most people want to talk about this being confident, right? In my company that I f- formerly worked at, it was confidence, right? The boastful and proudful, prideful people or arrogant people were really just confident people that knew, you know, how to get a job done. But really what that means is, you know, you think you're better than everyone else. You are never wrong. You don't want to be corrected. You always have a better way of doing something. My way is called the right way. But beyond that, what happens as you start to look down on other people, you become abusive, disobedient to parents or um, people who hate authority. You know, you become harsh in your speech, your criticism, nitpicking other people. You think about people that criticize everybody in authority. And they uh, think all the rules are for stupid people. I remember when somebody said that, I thought, oh, wow, that, that's really arrogant. You know, the, the rules aren't for me. I'm, I'm too good for them. But then it really begins to kind of corrode and you look at a lot of the next five uh, social vices, you know, you're ungrateful. You know, in a country like this, where we have so much, how many people complain about what they don't have? And they look about, you know, across the neighbor's uh, yard and everything they have. Unholy. I mean, that one speaks for itself. You just want to gratify yourself, and you don't really care what God says. You, you, people don't care what the Word of God says anymore. It's not, not my problem. Without love is an interesting one. Really, the, the Greek word gets to this point of like without a proper familial love. So this person doesn't care about their own family. They're verbally abusive, maybe physically abusive, Uh, They might choose their own addictions over the needs of their family. Spending too much time um, watching TV. They don't have 
um, enough love to, to kind of stand up and, and, and uh, parent their children. Unforgiving. This is a hard one, right? You know, holding grudges. We talked about that last week. Refusing to change is part of that, that definition around unforgiving is really, at the root of it, it's also talking about irreconcilable. It's a person that doesn't want to change. They won't change no matter what happens, no matter if they destroy their family or they destroy themselves. And how, I mean, how many people know someone like that? An irreconcilable person. That's a self-love to the, to the lowest level. And slanderous is actually the word diabolos, which means accuser. Um, it's also name, the name for Satan that's used 34 times in the Bible. Um, but it's really somebody that's a gossip, a slanderer, somebody that um, defames other people behind their back. Sometimes that can even come up in prayer requests um, in Christian circles, right? Now, eventually, you know, it's a downward spiral. You lose control. Um, you know, you see people today cause, uh, calling good evil and evil good. They're got their whole world upside down. They're rash, conceited, um, can't think of anyone else but themselves. And yet, at the end of it all, they'd prefer pleasure over God. They love their pleasure. Their stuff, their entertainment, their Amazon boxes, everything that comes to their door. Now, just reflecting on a couple of these questions, it's just a couple minutes, just a couple thoughts. I'm going to I'm going to ask a couple questions and, and let you kind of think uh, where you are. The first one I think of, you know, to love God properly, how much time do you spend with God? Is this the only time you spend with God? Are you in his word and praying? Because it's a, d- a direct reflection of, of how much love you have for God. Um. Do you really love God and others, or do you only do nice things for people when they don't get in your way, when it doesn't inconvenience yourself? So you do some nice things, and maybe you even do them for the wrong motives, but if it gets in the way of your stuff, your time, your, your routine, your, that's, a, that's a problem for me sometimes. I'm a man of routine, and I, I make unloving choices sometimes because I don't want to give up that routine, or I don't want to you know, kind of step out of my, my comfort zone. Another question. Do you have any damaged relationships currently in your life? I think it's hard not to. But are they a result of an unforgiving heart? Um, pride? Unforgiveness? Is it really something, is it, because you love yourself more than that other person. And, you know, when we think about coming to church, the question sometimes is, you know, do you come for what you get out of it and how you feel? Do you come whenever it's convenient? Or do you look at this church family as as, um, people that you love and that you're here to serve? And, um, you know, the one for marriage is always the hardest. You know, a lot of people marry others for what they get out of the relationship. And and normally that's what, you know, it ends poorly when you only marry someone because of how they make you feel. Because 
you know, when that when those feelings go away, where are you at with the with the marriage? Now, for those of you at the at the men's retreat, there was one uh, really challenging thing for me. Is the speaker was talking about reading that verse, and we're going to put up on on the slide just the verse 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. And he was talking about how he was challenged by a sermon to go home and ask his spouse if she would be able to put his name in place of love and how far he would get down that list. And I think when I read this verse, how, how far can I get down that verse? I am patient, I am kind, I do not envy, I do not boast, I am not proud, I do not dishonor others, I am not self-seeking, I am not easily angered, I keep no record of wrongs, I do not delight in evil but rejoice with the truth. I always protect, I always trust, I always hope, and I always persevere. Now, not one of us in this room are perfect, and not one of us can live up to that all the time. But the, the encouraging thing is that we do have the power through the Holy Spirit to live that type of love. Not only do we have the power, but we're actually called to do that. This, these, these verses in the Bible are an encouragement to us that we can live that type of love. So the best way, is, it's, it's really simple, and I'm going to just wrap it up with three um, really, you know, easy ways, not easy, <laughs> nothing's really easy, especially when you think about the greatest command is love, it's probably the hardest one too, right, for our flesh. It won't come natural all the time, but by setting our minds on true worship of God, when we're fully surrendered to Him, when we live sacrificially, and we show active love towards others, then we are truly pursuing um, true love. And I, I find, you know, really, it, if you ask my kids at the end of every devotions that we have as a family, you know, the answer is normally like, you know, God, Jesus, Bible, pray, you know, so <laughs> you got a good chance that that's going to be the answer here. But I just want to really talk about it a little bit more specifically. And, and I reference, you know, go through um, Psalm 119 at some point in your life. I would love to memorize. That's the next book, uh, or book that I'd like, or chapter I'd like to memorize. Because that author has such a relationship with God and God's word. And that's really your first key, right? When we hold fast to God's word and we know what the truth is and we spend time, the author, you know, said that, you know, he reflects on it night midnight, all day long, and even seven times a day he's in the Word. And he's meditating on it because he's growing to know what God loves and what God hates through the Word of God. And if you're spending time with God, you'll learn that too. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, you, Lord my God, are a faithful God who keeps your commandments and loving kindness to a thousand generations of those who love you and keep your commands. He shows his loving kindness to us because we keep his commands and we love him. The second is really God's spirit 
right? So it's God's word, it's God's spirit. The Holy Spirit is what produces real love within us. It can't be done by your own effort. And, you know, everyone that knows the fruit of the spirit verse, Galatians 5, through 23, really talks about the fruit of the spirit first starts with love. And it's, and it's a total package of all these um, true demonstrations of love, active love, like joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such, there is no law. So walking in the Spirit produces God's love. But here's the trick that I've learned in, in life. You've got to do it in the Spirit's strength through slowing down your own strength. You've got to stop long enough to know that your gut instinct most times is your fleshly response. You've got to die to yourself. You've got to put that on the shelf, and you have to, to follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And then what we talked about last week a little bit was about godly friends, right, and influences. And, and I think about all those who call on the Lord with a pure heart, those that I have walked side by side with. I have walked along uh, men who, you know, what impresses me, one of the most impressive things about Pastor Art is about how much he loves his wife and his family and this church. And I've had a chance to walk along with him for four years, um, learning under him. And, and that was one of the first things. His gentle, loving heart was something that God was teaching me that I needed more of in my own life. So walking alongside of someone, looking for that encouragement, learning from others um, is, is such a, a great way to learn true love. Now, Here's the end. I want to talk to you, and we're not done with Second Timothy, but here's the interesting thing. I thought, so there's this warning. How did they do? How, how did, don't you, you know, wish you could understand what, what happened in these circumstances? Um, well, this, in this time, we do know what happened, right? We do know what happened to the church in Ephesus. Um, Thirty years later, uh, if you've ever read the book of Revelation in chapter 2, there's a section devoted to the church in Ephesus, okay? And I'll read what it says. So the, the Apostle John wrote this uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. It's not bad. They dealt with the problem of false teachers. They persevered. They remained faithful, right? But, but here's where it flips in verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. And this is Christ speaking to the church. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Think about it. They had failed the test of love 30 years later when this was written. They did all the other things right, but this is the one thing that stuck out. And if they didn't change, 
they would have been snuffed out. Now, this is, for us, I think this is a call for this church. I, everyone that walks in these doors, they know the love we have for them. Each one of you, I love you. I do love you. And we all love all of you. And it's such a great place to be. And I've heard this from new, newcomers. I've heard it from people in membership class. You know, when they come in here, they know that people actually care about them. They love them. So when you walk in those doors, you know, we have that, that um, our mission statement out there that we exist to be disciples who make disciples who live and love like Jesus. So when your kids have kids and their kids come here, let's make sure that that remains the same. Let's pray. Father God, I love you so much. I thank you so much for the love that you show to us. We know that you loved us while we were still enemies. You demonstrated your love by sending your son a sacrifice for our sins, a penalty for all of our selfishness, was born by Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, we know that even for us as believers, we thankfully exchanged the old self for our new self. We are new creations. And yet we struggle. We struggle in this world. We get worn down by the things around us, by the influences that are constantly filling our minds with lies. Lord, may we not think only of ourselves or put ourselves above you, Lord. Make this our one cry that we would be wholly sold out to you, that we would give you our whole heart because you are so deserving of an undivided heart. May we lay down all of our idols. May we allow you to take first place in our lives. Be with us right now, Lord, as we close in this last song. Just ask that you would uh, give us your love and allow us to carry that out to those around us this week.